Good evening, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. going to read a couple of verses right near the very end of the New Testament, and that will give us the, the proper setup that we need to do some questions and answers this evening. I've got just two questions this evening that I'm going to work with, and I do hope to be uh, somewhat brief, at least comparatively brief, to other sermons that I preach. And I'll see if maybe I can refund a couple of the minutes that I took from you this morning, because I know I was a little long this morning, but uh, we'll talk about these uh, questions tonight, and I think they'll be very helpful for us. We do find ourselves meeting once again here in the, the darkness of the 6 o'clock hour. My, my body and my mind is still getting adjusted to uh, being dark this early in the day, but, but we have come here tonight, whether it's shining or whether it's dark, uh, to praise and to pray and to be involved in the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. And I'm thankful, sir, very much for your presence and even more so for your, your hearty participation this evening as we've come together to worship the Lord. Well, as I've already mentioned, I do have two questions this evening that both revolve around the idea of some some textual issues, or at least what are some perceived textual issues. Issues with how the text of Scripture is being handled, or maybe more to the point, how the text of Scripture is possibly being mishandled. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about, particularly as we read these verses from Revelation chapter 22. Read with me in verses 18 and 19. Because there John concludes the apocalypse with these words. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That's a pretty stern warning, isn't it? And it carries with it a high penalty, very severe consequences. Don't go tampering with the words of this book or you're going to be in some trouble. And while John, as he says this, he is specifically addressing the words of this book, as in the book of Revelation, the book that he had authored. I do believe that the very same thing could be said about any part of this entire book. That could be said about any part of the Bible. Don't be adding to the Scriptures things that should not be there. And by that same token, don't be subtracting from the Scriptures things that are not in there. No human being has the right to go about meddling with the Word of God. I'm going to cherry pick out the things that I like, and I'm going to discard the parts that I don't like. You know, long ago, in the Old Testament, Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, he took out his penknife, and he tried to cut out the parts of God's message that he didn't like, that kind of rubbed him the wrong way, which was in fact all of it, and he tried to throw it and cast it into the fire. And you know what? That didn't turn out well for him. And what John says here in these verses is that's not going to go well for anyone who attempts to add. Or this evening, I want us to think about the idea of taking away, subtracting from the Word of God. And that is the setup that brings me to the two questions that we have this evening. And I want to preface all of this by telling you that I am a big fan of internet memes. I like them. I like to share them. They make you laugh. They can make you uh, crack up a little bit. Sometimes they even are designed to, to make a specific point and to make a statement. But I want you to know this evening that I am not a fan of these kinds of memes. I have seen this kind of thing a number of different times. This is just one of many. And in fact, I'll share a few of these with you this evening. And it says this. 
If you have an NIV Bible, try to find these verses. And then, of course, right there at the bottom, there's this big long list catalog of all of these verses. Oh, my, the horror, the NIV Bible has taken these verses out of the Scripture. I mean, they've just hit the delete button. They have backspaced them out. They've cut them out of there. They've thrown them into the fire. These people are guilty of what we just read in Revelation 22 and in verse 19. And these kinds of things, I see these things all the time. I see all these these things all the time by religious folks. I even have had some Christian friends, members of the church, who have shared this very kind of thing. It gets shared on the internet, it starts floating around on social media, and it is what prompts this first question this evening, and that is, why does the NIV and other translations, why do they delete verses from the Bible? Here I saw this meme popped up on Facebook. And it suggested that the NIV Bible, that they had taken liberties with the text of Scripture. And in fact, here's, here's another one of those. Saw this one floating around on Facebook. Here's a whole bunch of other translations that apparently did the exact same thing. Deleted out this verse. All these other translations. Guilty of deleting verses from the Bible. And I want to know, who gave them the right to do that? Who gave them the right? Who gave any man the right to edit or to delete words from the Word of God? Well, I want you to know this evening, without any equivocation at all, and in fact, here's, here's a couple more of those memes, I want you to know that this kind of stuff, it is absolutely, completely and totally bogus. This kind of thing substitutes a gut reaction for real, constructive thinking. This kind of thing is designed to punch you in the stomach and cause you to say, Oh my, my NIV, or my ESV, or my New American Standard Bible, it must be terrible, I can't trust my Bible anymore. This thing wants you to come to that reaction without actually stopping and investigating and thinking for yourself. So the question is, what exactly is going on here? Is there any merit to these kinds of things and the accusations that they make? And if not, then why exactly do these kinds of things get created? Why do they get floated around? Why do so many people buy into the things that they have to offer? Well, let me set before you just a couple of quick points about this. Some ideas that I think will help us. Help us, first of all, in our own understanding. But secondly, as we encounter other people who have things to say about Bible translations, maybe I have a friend and I, they start posting this kind of stuff. Maybe I'll be a little bit better informed at the end of all of this. I'll be able to help them to think some things through. First and foremost, I want you to know this evening that if you do have an NIV or an ESV or New American Standard Bible or any of the other what we might call more modern translations of the Scripture, and by, by that I mean basically anything that's been translated in like the last, I don't know, hundred years, just in this last century, if you have one of those Bibles, I want you to know that all of those verses that were mentioned up there as being deleted, I want you to know that those verses have not been deleted Those verses are in your Bible. They're there. They're just set off. They're marked off in a little bit different fashion. Either they're bracketed, or maybe the words are italicized, or maybe those words are placed in the marginal, the center column of your Bible. Maybe they're even placed at the bottom as a footnote in your Bible. But they are not missing. They're there. The translator has put them in that special position for a reason. They've set them off in that distinctive way because there is some question 
about the authenticity of those words. There is some question as to whether or not those particular verses should be included in the canon of Scripture. Let me just ask you, and this is without us launching into a, a big discussion about uh, textual variants. I did a Q&A a couple of years ago where we talked about textual variants. You can pull that up on the podcast. You can listen to that one there. But let me just ask you, if there are translators who are working with, they're working with all these different manuscript evidence that they have, all the good manuscripts that are available to us today here in 2019, and if they come across a passage that is included over here in one manuscript, here's this verse and it's included in this one manuscript, but then over here in ten other manuscripts, who maybe are actually older than this manuscript, and in these ten manuscripts those words are not found, do you want the translators to just go ahead and take those words out of that one manuscript and just include them in the Bible anyway? Without any remarks at all? Without any kind of caveat? Without any kind of asterisk mark? Without any kind of indication that, hey, these verses, you know, these verses are a little uncertain. Or, option B, on the other hand, would you rather that maybe they do put that little asterisk or put something in italics or put it in the brackets or put some kind of a note in the margin to cue you the reader of the Bible, that, hey, we're not entirely sure about this one verse. The manuscript evidence is not as strong with this passage as it is with the other passages in the Bible. And so you might want to just, you might want to do a little bit more studying on your own. You might want to investigate that further, especially if you're going to build and pitch your tent on this one verse and construct some big giant theology on this one verse. You might want to know that this verse... Well, it is debatable. Now, you think about those two options of what what would you prefer the translators to do. I know what my preference is. I'd rather go with option B over here. Because while these verses are in dispute, they are still there. And I appreciate translators. They're going to still include those verses in there. They're just marked. Just set them off so that you can know there's some question about these. Which leads me to this second observation this evening. And that is that those verses are marked off in your Bible that way not because of some doctrinal bias that the translators are trying to make, but simply because the manuscript evidence is weak. It's not as strong as it could be. Generally speaking, and, 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 and I want to really kind of emphasize that, generally speaking, because I know somebody after service is going to come up to me, and they're going to tell me about some crazy, newfangled translation of the Bible that's out there, that some wacko nut job somewhere has just kind of put together on his own, I realize there's exceptions, but generally speaking, Bible translation is done by committee where you have several people involved in that. You have several very knowledgeable people, people who know the Greek, they know the Hebrew, they know the Aramaic, people who come from a variety of religious backgrounds and they've all come together to try to piece together and put together the most accurate translation of the ancient text. No translator who is worth his salt who has any integrity, would ever try to press their theology into the text. Again, that's why all of the most reputable Bible translations that we have in circulation today, they are put together by a group of scholars who are checking, and then they're cross-checking, and they're keeping each other in check. And they're looking at each other's work. And they're seeing to it that no particular doctrinal bias is being pressed into Scripture. They've got to work together on that. And that is why, for example, I will not touch the New World Translation. That's the NWT. That translation was done by the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1961. 
And their particular theology, the theology and the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, it is all over that translation of the Bible. And it was not done with an impartial group in an impartial setting of scholars. No, it was done by Jehovah's Witnesses. And in fact, they won't even release to you the names of the men who participated in that translation project. No, you know about that? That's very secretive. They keep that very close to the vest. That, to me, is a red flag. That says that there's something suspect about that translation. We can't even go and question the, the credentials of those men who did that translating. We can't go and ask, hey, are those guys actual Greek and Hebrew scholars? Hey, what manuscripts did they actually look at when they came to their conclusions? You know, how exactly did they arrive? What was their philosophy in the translation process? They won't discuss any of that. We just have to take it because they say you got to take it. Well, no thanks. I'm not doing that. But when we're talking about reputable translations of the Bible, like the New King James Version, like the English Standard Version, like the New American Standard Bible, and yes, even like the New International Version, those are reputable translations. They are very upfront about how they go about that translation. In fact, maybe even look in the front of your Bible. I was looking at mine a little bit earlier today. Usually in those first, I don't know, three, four, five pages, there's a preface up there. And there's probably something in there that tells you a little bit about how they came to the translation that they did. Mine actually says something in here. It says something about how you can actually request a complete list of the Translation Oversight Committee. More than a 100 people by name, they will give you all of that information if you request it. And they tell you what their philosophy was. Was this a word-for-word translation? Or do they try to be more of a thought-for-thought translation? Or was this just more one of those paraphrase kinds of deals? They'll tell you all of that. They'll tell you about what kind of manuscripts they relied most heavily upon as they came to this conclusion, this translation of the Bible. All of that is very transparent. All of that, it is available to the public at large. There is no conspiracy going on here. That decision then, to mark those verses off, it has nothing to do with some kind of doctrinal bias where the translators are trying to make everybody into Calvinists or trying to make everybody into premillennialists or trying to make everybody into some other kind of denominational group. And by the way, you should know that all of those verses that are in dispute, that's a bunch of them, and there there are a few more that could be put on there. But you need to know that all of those verses that are questionable and are in dispute, none of them change or affect any of the doctrine, any of the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. That's critical for you to understand. Let's look, for example, let's just pick one of those verses there. Look at John chapter 5, verse 4. In John chapter 5 and in verse 4, it's one of the verses listed on the meme. And in my English Standard Version, it is found down at the bottom of the page in a footnote. And this is the story about the healing that took place there at the Pool of Bethesda. In John 5, verse 4, the footnote records, or the italics records, or the brackets records... That there was waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. Question. Why would someone want to delete John 5 verse 4? What would that accomplish? What, What purpose would that serve? Well, what bias are they somehow advancing by cutting that verse out? Are we saying, oh, well, I'll tell you why they cut that verse out. They're just trying to remove miracles from the Bible. And in fact, I found a meme that listed that verse and a couple of others. Like, 
The NIV is trying to cut miracles out of the Bible. Well, you're going to have to cut out a lot more verses than just John 5 verse 4. There are hundreds of miracles in the Bible. Miracles are all over the Bible. The NIV and the ESV, yeah, you can cut those verses out. And still there's miracles in there. What what, what would it accomplish to cut that out? What nefarious theology is being pressed on the unsuspecting masses by deleting John 5 verse 4? Somebody maybe says, well, I'll tell you what, I think it's because they're trying to get angels out of the Bible. Trying to cut angels out of the Bible. Again, angels are everywhere in the Bible. Not just in John 5 verse 4. They're all over the Old Testament. They're all over the New Testament. We're going to have to cut out a whole lot more verses than just those few verses right there in order to get angels or miracles out of the Scripture. Setting John chapter 5 verse 4 over to the side or bracketing it off or putting it as a footnote, it changes what? It changes absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. There's another one there on that list, Acts chapter 8, verse 37. That's one of those verses that gets lots of press for for being quote-unquote deleted. And that's that verse where the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip has the interaction with the Ethiopian man in the desert. And that is the verse where the Ethiopian man makes the good confession that I do believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let me ask you, if that verse were removed from the Bible, does it change anything about what the Bible teaches about salvation? Does it change what the Bible teaches about the necessity of confession before a person can be saved? Nope. Doesn't change that at all. You'd still have Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. That confession, it is made from the mouth, it emanates from the heart, and it is made from the mouth. You'd still have Matthew 10, verse 32. Jesus' own words that says, whoever confesses me before men will be saved. Those passages are not in dispute. And those passages do teach that confession is a prerequisite for salvation. And of course, we could go down that whole list of verses. I could do every single one of those. But we just don't even need the, we don't, we don't have the time for that. We really don't even need to do that. We would all arrive still at the same conclusion. That those verses and removing them or setting them off to the side, it has nothing to do with some kind of a theological bias. It has nothing to do with trying to persuade and influence your belief about a particular doctrine of Scripture. What it does have to do is with one thing and one thing only. And that is, what does the manuscript evidence show? And the truth of the matter is, older manuscripts are better. That's what we want. Older manuscripts is what we're looking for. And in fact, those kinds of manuscripts are being discovered more and more all the time. And I'm just, I get excited when I hear about some new manuscript that's been discovered from centuries and centuries ago. Older manuscripts are better. And I'm going to tell you this evening that older manuscripts do not contain those verses. Older manuscripts do not contain John 5 verse 4. Some of our best and most reliable textual evidence does not contain John 5 4 or Acts 8 37 or any of those others. There is, there's Papyri P66. That dates back to the second century. That's really close to the time of the New Testament. There's Papyri P75. That's dated back to the 3rd century. Again, that's really close to the time of the original writing. There's the the Codex Sinaiticus. It is one of the most important manuscripts that we have today. That one dates to the 4th century. None of those contain John chapter 5 verse 4. You don't find John 5 verse 4 until a manuscript that is dated to the 5th century. Now that's starting to put some distance between the time of the early writing and when that manuscript was written. And so the textual critics, the scholars, what they've got to do is they've got, they've got to look at all that. 
They've got to try and weigh all of that evidence. Is verse 4 really a part of the Bible? And at the end of the day, that is what we're really talking about. Because it is wrong to remove verses. Make no mistake about that. It is absolutely wrong to try to subtract, to take away from the Word of God. But you know what? It is just as wrong to add verses that don't belong there. You know, sometimes when I see these memes floating around on Facebook, I'm always really, really tempted to copy it. And I'll cover over some of that stuff. And I'll write on the top of it myself, the King James Version has added all of these verses to the Bible. I'm afraid that will probably infuriate a lot of folks if I did that. But you know what? That does seem to be fueling what is a, a lot of this. Oh, I tell you what, they're deleting verses out of the Bible. There's people out there who, man, they've just got some, some terrible wicked schemes up their sleeve and they're trying to delete stuff. What that's fueled from is from this mistaken belief and idea that the King James translation of the Bible is the standard. You know what? If it's in the King James Version of the Bible, in fact, don't you know it, on the front of my King James, it says the authorized King James Bible. If it's in the King James Bible, then that, that is the Word of God. And if there's a translation that comes along down the pike that doesn't agree word for word with everything that the King James Bible says, well, I'll tell you what, there must be a conspiracy afoot. The devil's at work. In fact, I included this and you probably can't make it out here. That's what this guy's suggesting. If you're reading from something other than the King James, it's the devil. The devil's making it easy for you to go to hell. Those NIV translators, oh, I'll tell you what, all kinds of conspiracy going on. They're probably the ones behind all this global warming stuff. They're the ones who probably were involved in the assassination of JFK. They probably are the ones who faked the moon landing too. All oh, those people, they've wrecked the Bible. Folks, I want to be abundantly clear. The King James Bible is not the standard. It didn't come along until the 1600s. Now, I want you to know that the King James Bible, it is an incredible translation. For the first, I don't know, 27, 28 years of my life, that's the Bible that I carried around. That's the Bible that I taught Bible class from and preached from. It's an amazing translation of the Scriptures. In the providence of God, it is the single most influential English document ever, ever produced. It is a very good translation. But I want to also say that in 1611, those guys who did that translating, they didn't have many of the manuscripts that we now have today. They did not have the papyri P66 or P75. They did not have some of the oldest manuscripts that we now have in our possession today. Do you want to know what I think those 1611 translators would tell us if they were standing right here, right now in 2019? They would say, use the best manuscripts that are available. And if need be, go back and correct our translation so that people can have the most accurate copy of the Word of God that is available to them. And so instead of making up all kinds of false and phony conspiracy theories that act like somehow the King James Bible, it just fell straight from heaven. And if anybody does anything different from the King James Bible, oh my, you don't have a real Bible. How about instead what we do is how about we just do some thinking? How about we do some critical thinking. And that is the failure, I, I, I'm afraid, on the part of many of my King James Version onlyest friends. Because you know what? It's really, really easy to, to make one of those memes and to post it on the World Wide Web and to see that thing get shared around by hundreds, thousands, and then millions of people. It's really easy to do that. 
It's really easy to just look at a translation of the Bible that is different from the wording and the exact structure that I grew up with, the Bible that I'm most familiar with, and to say, oh, it's terrible. It has to be the work of the devil. What other conclusion can there be? Saying that kind of thing and doing that kind of thing, that requires zero thinking. But what we've just talked about, what we've just kind of worked through in a relatively short period of time, well, that requires some thought. That requires some careful consideration. Looking at those verses, looking at them in light of the manuscript evidence, that requires thinking. And I realize that is hard for 21st century Americans, but we can do it. God expects us to do it, and in fact, for the last few minutes, that's what we've done. Let's be thinkers. Now, all of that is really a setup, and really kind of provides a, a good setup for us to bang out the second question relatively quickly. And that is for one of the biggest sections in Scripture that is oftentimes called into question. And it is right there at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And that question is this. Does Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, does that belong in our Bibles or not? Now, once again, if you will go to that passage in your Bible, if you're reading from something other than a King James Bible, you'll probably notice that it's either italicized, or there's a footnote, or there's a margin note, or it's bracketed. That's how the ESV has it. In fact, the ESV has double brackets around it. And it's got a note, even right there above that section, that just says that some of the earliest, some of the oldest manuscripts do not include those verses. And so, there is some question as to whether these verses are authentic Markian verses. If, I can, if that's even a word. Markian verses is this Scripture. Now, hopefully what we just talked about in question number one doesn't cause anybody to just kind of have a knee-jerk reaction where you get angry at the fact that someone would ask this question. Hopefully none of us are going to throw a fit and say, how dare anyone question these beautiful verses. Mark 16, 16 is my favorite Bible verse of all time. How dare you call it into question? What do you mean these verses are questionable? Well, you know what? It is entirely possible that a scribe could have, as he was copying down the Bible, making those what we have as the manuscripts today, it's very possible that a scribe could have maybe went into business for himself. And he starts writing down some additional words there somewhere on the page, maybe to the side or maybe to the bottom. And as a result, over time, as copy after copy after copy is made, something that an uninspired scribe once wrote, it begins to be included and accepted as part of the text. And now, now it's being treated as if it is Scripture, as if it is the Word of God. Now I'll tell you this, for me once again, I'd be awfully thankful For a scholar who maybe centuries later comes along and starts looking at that evidence and say, well, hold on now. We we maybe ought to pump the brakes a little bit. And we ought to be a little bit reluctant to be treating those words as the actual Word of God because those may just simply be the words of a scribe. And you should know this evening that the case against the authenticity of Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 is actually kind of strong. You should know, for example, that two of our oldest manuscripts, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, those manuscripts do not contain these verses. They do not. No mention at all of these verses in those manuscripts. 
Furthermore, many of the writings of some of the most trusted early church fathers, and I'm using that term church fathers kind of accommodatively, we're talking about guys who were around during the 2nd and 3rd centuries who was doing some writing, uninspired writing, but were writing about the things that were going on. They don't quote Mark 16 verses 9 through 20. They don't make reference to these particular verses. Additionally, someone has been very astute to note that there are actually 14 new words in that little section that Mark did not use anywhere in the previous 15 chapters of his gospel that Mark had not used anywhere prior to that point of the text. And as a result, that's caused some people to look at that little section at the end and say, you know what, that that just doesn't even sound like Mark. He's not even using Mark kinds of words. And I'm not sure that might not be maybe maybe a completely different author here. And so there's a case that could be made against including this in the canon of Scripture. Having said all that, you should know that there is also, I think, a very good case for including it in the canon of Scripture. For example, there are several translations of the Bible. And again, I'm not talking about manuscripts of the original. I'm talking now about translations of those manuscripts. There are translations in the Egyptian language and in the Coptic language, amongst others, that do include those verses. And those translations actually... They actually predate those two manuscripts I just mentioned a moment ago. That's pretty old. And that's pretty compelling stuff. Furthermore, while there are some church fathers who make no reference to these verses, well, there are some other church fathers who do quote these verses. Tatian, Irenaeus, those guys live during the 2nd and the 3rd century. That's kind of the time frame that we're talking about. That seems like some pretty compelling evidence. And then on a practical note, this is just a question that I have personally... My question is, if these verses do not belong in Mark's Gospel, then just how, just how exactly does Mark's Gospel end? How does this story end? Cain and I, this past summer, we, we did the chapter chat where each week we were discussing, just having a one-on-one conversation about a different chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And so we got to work through it pretty extensively. I feel like I got pretty familiar with Mark's writing and what Mark is trying to build to and what he's trying to to convince his audience to believe, it's hard for me to believe that Mark would just end his gospel right there at the end of verse 8. In fact, look at the end of verse 8. How's the end of verse 8 go? He's got the story here of a bunch of scared women who heard about the resurrection. Mark 16 verse 8 would read, And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. In fact, in the Greek translation, or in the actual Greek of the New Testament, the way that the gospel would literally end would be on the word for. Actually, those words, they were afraid. That's actually not even included. It would end on the word for. And I'll just say once again, that just doesn't seem like Mark to me. In fact, it doesn't even seem like God to me for God to guide someone in the writing of His Word and it would end on, not even really even a cliffhanger, it would end on kind of a, huh? Well, I don't even get that. Seems like there's some unfinished business here. Why did it end right there? And so I think that the case is actually pretty strong to say that Mark chapter 16 verses 9 through 20, that this actually is Scripture. And one of the reasons that I say that is probably this last point, and that is when you look at these verses, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new in these verses. Everything in these verses was either already promised by Jesus or it is discussed elsewhere in the Scriptures, specifically in those other Gospel accounts. 
You read Matthew, you read Luke, you read John. Nothing that's recorded in any of their Gospels is going to contradict with the things that are recorded there in verses 9 through 20. I think... I think we can say that these verses are Scripture. That's my conclusion. You may come to a different conclusion. You do your own critical thinking. Do your own study. Do your own research. You may come to the conclusion that, eh, I'm kind of content to just kind of leave that in brackets and just kind of not touch that for a while. Maybe in a few years, somebody will make a new discovery. And we'll find a manuscript that is dated back to as close to the first century as it possibly can be. And lo and behold, someone will open it up and right there... It's verses 9 through 20, or what we know is verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16. It'll help put some confirmation on these verses. But for us, and for me, I'm going to say that this is Scripture. And in fact, what I'd like to do, since we're here, is I'd like to just read those verses. Because they then segue into providing a good opportunity for us to extend the invitation of the Lord. In Mark 16, beginning in verse 9. Now when He rose early on the first day of the week, He, that's Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and as they wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, those that he talked with on the road to Emmaus. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. That harmonizes perfectly with what Luke's Gospel tells us. Verse 14. Afterwards, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And He rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw Him after He had risen. And He said to them, Go, go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. The book of Acts bears all of that out. Verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now whether you want to take Mark's account of all that, or you're welcome to take Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 28, or whichever of the other ones you prefer, the question is, what are you going to do with what the Word of God has said? What are you going to do specifically with those words of Jesus? I'm interested most particularly in that 16th verse where Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized, they're going to be saved. Have you done that? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as God's Son? Confessed Him before others? Repented, turned from sin and turned to God? And then, yes, been baptized, immersed in water so that your sins can be washed away, so that you can rise out of that watery grave a new creation, a Christian. Can we help you tonight to become a Christian? Can we help you, brother or sister, to serve the Lord in a better way, to be a better Christian? Whatever your need may be, the invitation is open to you right now. Would you seize upon this moment? Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.